Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. I'm here today with Alex Cadwaller, who is the director at Leonard Curtis Business Solutions, They're a company specializing in insolvency advice, finance raising, administration, CVA, distressed real estate portfolios, and addressing fractured lending facilities, as well as providing directors of struggling businesses with positive strategic advice. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Rod. So to start with, do you just want to give a quick intro as to what it is that Leonard Curtis does, maybe an example of some of those solutions that I kind of mentioned in that intro and when businesses or even creditors might expect to bring someone like yourselves in. in. Yeah, so we are, as it says, we're a business solutions group and uh, we focus on helping businesses and individuals when they are in financial distress or require some sort of uh, fundraising. So basically we like to try and step in whenever your standard accountant can't. So that will go from looking to raise some some finance, and it might be that they're not able to go to their typical high street lender, to having an issue with their landlord, to HMRC chasing them. Um, So we will do provide some advice to the, the, the borrower, so be that a director or an individual, to dealing with and working for the banks, the lenders, a creditor who's pursuing a debt or who's got a troublesome customer that's not able uh, to assist. Most of our work as a firm, we call ourselves sort of debtor-led. So we work on generally on the director's side of things or the individual's as opposed to working directly for for the banks. Um, I would say that's quite common now, Rod, because the culture has slightly changed, yeah. whilst a lot of the pub chat, as we call it, refers to receiverships in the 90s. Generally, banks don't act like that. Um, they are concerned about treating the customer fairly and so on and so on, and they'll always encourage directors to, to be proactive, which will come on today. That's really what they should be trying to do. And do you think what you've just mentioned about the banks really trying to push directors in the right direction, do you think that's a lot as a result of kind of 2008, 2009 and the way some banks maybe behaved like um, RBS? And, yeah, so you obviously had yeah. the RBS GRG scandal. You've got some issues at uh, HBOS, which now Lloyds are having, having to deal with. But even then, they were still trying to proactively Ask directors to make the decisions. Yeah. You know what what happened with GRG was still in line with that, um, and you know I don't want to get into too much <laughs> detail of that. So I'd say it's before that, Rod. So okay. I think really in, in the nineties, what I understand you and I are probably well, we are too young to remember exactly how yeah. that recession worked. But from what I understand, the phone was ringing every day here with the bank appointing us as a receiver. That wasn't the case in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, and it isn't now. They will still do it. And also depends who you're borrowing money off. Um, Some of them will be very conscious of their PR. Some of your uh, other lenders won't be. You know, it may well just be an individual in the background that's backing this. He wants his money back. He's got a termination rate, which he will apply. If he's got secondary security, he will go after it. Other banks are slightly more concerned. So you always need to be aware of who you're dealing with. 
Yeah, good. And so what would you, because we hear like these terms, liquidation, insolvency, receivership, administration. What What is the main difference in, uh, between receivership and administration? Okay, well, I'll probably take it back okay. one step further, Rod, and say, first of all, in the UK, you've got bankruptcy, yeah. which is purely for an individual. Mm-hmm. Okay, you see it all the time in a um, in the media, this company's gone bankrupt. Yeah. That only applies to individuals over here. Okay. In the US, bankruptcy does apply to companies as well. You've then got administration, liquidation, and receivership, which are forms of insolvency over here. Uh, without trying to get too technical, receivership is when you when is when you're appointed over a an asset that has a fixed charge. Yeah. Okay. So that would be say a property. So mm-hmm. if you were an individual that borrowed some money off a bank, had a mortgage on your bank and you are unable to pay it, the bank has the ability to pay the mortgage or service it, so it's in default. The bank has the ability to appoint a receiver over that property. Yeah. Okay. An administration is generally when you're looking to say a business as a going concern. Okay. So that will be a company that is trading. It may well be a property company. And then a liquidation generally is used to wind a company down. Mm-hmm. As in, you're not trying to save the business. Yeah. You just want to sort of wind it down and get the, you know, the best result possible. In terms of the borrower, the customer's point of view, there isn't too much difference. Yeah. And generally, you're better off just letting a, you know, someone like myself or, or a lawyer advise you on what the most appropriate route will be. People sort of are, are concerned that a receivership is purely there for a... You're only acting for the bank, but case law shows that you have to act in the best interest of all the creditors, including okay. the borrower. So you'll get people get concerned, a receiver's been appointed, the property's just gonna be sold for just a bit more that the bank's owed. That doesn't happen anymore. And if that does happen, the receiver can get challenged pretty quickly and he's not really gonna have a leg to stand on when he goes to court. So, so what happens when you've got situations, because obviously in, in property there's a lot of developments, and yep. people are geared up quite high, maybe you've got second charge or mezzanine finance, and yep. there could even then be an equity portion. Yeah, sure. yep. So there it's obviously you've got the capital stack going through the secured lenders first in order of charges and then yeah. your, your equity holders so do you find then is it often the uh, first or second charge lenders that start the process or is it quite often the equity holders because they feel they're last in the line and there's, yeah. there's no hope so, so generally how it works with sort of first second third charge holders mm-hmm. and an equity is that the guys that have the first charge generally have the ability to stop a process that someone else has, in, someone else has initiated mm-hmm. and take control of it. Yeah. So okay. they have to always generally will have to be served notice. Mm-hmm. So it depends on who serves that notice. Is that person known to the bank? Are they on a panel firm? Yeah. Um, and do they do they agree with the strategy? So for instance, if I'm if I'm approached say by a director who has the equity. Um, and it, there's a bank involved, we'll put together a strategy note. This is what we propose to do. This is what the outcome looks like. And then I go and see the bank. If, you know, other other people, unfortunately, will just go along and say, well, I need to notify the bank. Don't give them any context. Bank panics and appoint someone on their panel. And then you've lost that opportunity to try and you know, have a discussion yeah. with the bank. And you know, often that can, can be unfortunate. Then once you're appointed, Rod, you're then looking to... You have to consider all options, but ultimately what a receiver... A receiver, if you look at a part development, what a receiver doesn't have to do is go and borrow some more money to complete the completion 
wait three years for the market to turn, wait for you know a hotel to be built next door or the council to yeah. you know, redevelop this and then sell it. You know, he has to do what's reasonable. He'll take he'll have to instruct some agents, take it to the to the market. He's he's not gonna be able to do sort of like a little side deal with someone, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, the market has to be tested, but he doesn't have to sit on that property for when the directors or the equity guys think would be the best time. Uh, and that's where sometimes there's a bit yeah. of a conflict, but I know we've got a lot of listeners now that have just gone, damn, we, we, can't, we can't get these side deals. So obviously that's, that's not a thing that happens these days, is it? Not, not, listen, we get approached probably yeah. on a daily basis from people saying, look, can we, add, can we come onto your database, so on and so on. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you want to you know, get yourself in the best possible position, it's the same as anything. Same as a property, you know, if you have got, if you can move quickly, you've got access to cash, so on and so on you put yourself in a really strong position yeah. but uh, the quickest I've ever sort of transacted on a deal from being appointed was still you know 16 weeks and that was one that we it was a, quite a, a, a well-known site uh, in Knightsbridge that had been around for a long time had quite a checkered history had been on the market but not on the market yeah. for you know three or four years it was pretty stagnant so the only way we could shift it is by almost publicising that I was appointed and that I was going to sell it. Mm. Whereas previously, the, the borrower was probably rejecting some of the potential offers. No, no one ever knew he was serious. Um, so we did, as I created a condensed six-week marketing period, invited some offers over a weekend. And then on this site, we exchanged and completed within sort of, I think it was 36 hours of uh, best bids. Oh, really? Um, well. And But then again, that was still 16 weeks. And I imagine that was a market. very high high value kind of property as it, well. well. So it you was. Go, it, you, you're going, only going to a certain select probably yeah group that can that, that are in the market for those sort of properties yeah, yeah. A- absolutely you know and also the state of the it was a hole in the ground being blunt rod yeah um and it had been that hole for 10 years <laughs> and uh, yeah everyone already knew about it so you know yeah. in that one we worked with you know two very prominent well-known international agents mm-hmm. use their black book uh, and uh, generate the interest from there because i was going to say you mentioned you kind of take it out to market and you're, you're really you've got to wear so many different hats because you're looking at almost being the the head agent and then subbing that part out to the agencies and yeah. doing various different roles within that, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, ultimately, yes. Yeah. So in certain instances, just so you, like the, the only thing, with a, an LPA receiver, you don't necessarily need to be, well, you don't need to be an insolvency practitioner. Okay. What happens often is if it's slightly complex, a bank will prefer to appoint an insolvency practitioner because they can give them wider advice on, on the strategy that then I then will always work alongside a more traditional estate agent as, yeah. as we call it so we yeah. work alongside uh, alongside them if it's a vanilla property uh, you'll see some of the lenders will just use a typical estate yeah. agent appointed as a receiver yeah. you know however um, as you as you you know with developments it tends to be slightly more yeah. complex you've got different stakeholders involved so on and so on and as soon as someone questions good title, someone's a bit, has that person been um, properly appointed, so on and so on. Estate agents just can get nervous and walk away and won't want to take the transaction. So when it's a little bit, you know, it's more complex or has some issues, then I get involved as well. Uh, And then yes, ultimately I'm there to sort of manage the process. Uh, Ideally you want everyone's motive to be aligned. I get the best possible price. Um, And that's relatively straightforward to do um, um, in property because 
when you sell businesses, you tend to have a lot more deferred consideration based on performance, so on and so on. Whereas on property, it tends to be you pay X when yeah. you exchange, you pay X when you complete, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And when would you say business leaders and directors would be coming to someone like yourself? What what kind of situations might they find themselves in and be thinking, God, what do I do here and where can you help them? You know, bit of a broad question. It is a bit of a broad <laughs> question. So as per the the, the statute, so to yeah. speak, as soon as they're concerned that the business may not be able to re- return to a solvent position. Okay. So that's when you definitely have to do it. Yeah. So that's when look, there's no reason why your business is suddenly going to turn around. You yeah. are underwater at some point. This business, someone is going to force this company into liquidation. At that point, you have to. If you don't, you can be criticised for um, you know, trading whilst insolvent, which yeah. brings wrongful and fraudulent trading. But you don't want to get there. Ideally, you want as soon as there's some, you know, you're looking at your cash flows, you're looking at you know your balance sheet. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start to think this isn't heading quite where I want to, take some advice then because you'll be quite surprised. Oddly, I've listed sort of three different insolvency processes. Yeah. We've also got another one called a CVA, but really you can use a CVA and or an administration to save your business. Yeah. So just because you know that company may well fail, you can find a way to save the business. It might be that we can put some different type of finance in place, you know, change the, uh, the lender who's got different appetite to risk, look at leveraging a different part of your business as a different asset, so mm. on and so on. And that can often just save your business as opposed to just letting it go to the wall. Have you got any example? I'm sure you've got lots of examples, yeah. but have you got any that you can kind of give us some insight into about where businesses might have been too slow to take action themselves uh, when these problems come around and, and maybe what could have been done? To stop those from escalating. Yeah, um, obviously you're operating in, in, in hindsight, but of course, yeah. You know, for instance, if I get a phone call on a Tuesday from a director that says I can't pay the wages on Thursday, my options are limited. You know, had you come to me six weeks before, you know, there are uh, there's a community of turnaround investors. So that will go from people like Hilco, who did a lot of space in the, sorry, did a lot of work in the retail space. Okay. Just, yeah. just, and so got involved in sort of Woolworths, Habitat. Um, they recently picked up a home base, yeah. uh, things like that, to much smaller entities that are comfortable with an introduction being made on, you know, on day one and then transaction from some of them within two weeks. Okay. So yeah. they will come and sit down with you buy into your business, your plan, and ultimately, being blunt, well, this is their space. Yeah. So they know if you went to a traditional uh, funder, he'd want three months DD. Mm-hmm. These guys make decisions pretty quickly, but they're obviously getting a bigger slice of the equity yeah. because they know... Because they're specialists in that exactly. area, yeah. But that does give you an opportunity to, to save a business. It's when you leave it too late, yeah. and then you've got... And what I would say is the, the longer you leave it the less control you have of the process as a, as a yeah. director. You'll either get your secured creditor to take action themselves, and as we discussed, if you don't go and see the right advisor, you're then you know not in a great position because they'll put a panel firm in, or you'll end up with a petition against your company, a winding up petition, or if it's you personally, a bankruptcy petition, and that then means it becomes a court-driven process, which is a slower process, yet yeah, does put additional hurdles in place. But to give you some sort of examples, you know, 
there's still, and I'm sure it's in every industry, there's still a hell of a lot of misconceptions and you know, urban myths about our world. The fact is that when we all get into business, no one really, when you were at school, we didn't get told how to run a business and what happens and yeah. what doesn't happen. You know, in, in this in this boardroom, I had some very successful you know, entrepreneurs who had a fintech business that were struggling. Sat down and said, look, you know, we've raised, I think yeah, this, this business had, you know, 19 million thrown at it. It was a fintech business helping uh, traders with their regulatory requirements. The guy sat down, they were mainly shareholders and said, look, we need to put this into liquidation probably in the next couple of weeks. How much is it going to cost us as, as shareholders to pay for this? I was like, okay, it's not normally how it works. And just for your listeners... The way a liquidation or administration is paid for, it's actually out of the asset realizations. Okay. So they're sold. The creditors then agree our fee structure yeah. and then pay for it. And it's pretty standard and it has been the case since 1986. So I had these three successful fintech shareholders asking how much they had to pay for it personally. I then looked at it. It actually had six weeks runway. It was a decent business. It had some nice blue chip customers. So I said, look, you know, have you... What, what's the implication of this business failing on these blue chip customers? Uh, well, I don't know. So well, let, let's look at that. And in the end, what we transpired, that this business failing would cause these customers a hell of a lot of issues themselves because they didn't have enough. There was no one else doing what they were doing. They hadn't developed their own process. So I said, well, look, let's just run a sales process. So we then ran the sales process and it ended up doing, selling it to a joint venture between one of the customers and a, a big Swedish entity and we almost, you know, recovered all their money back. And that was just from them not fully understanding how insolvency works. We still did it through an administration, which meant we could leave certain liabilities, certain contingent liabilities behind, so on and so on. But they came in here ready to write out a check to close this business, this company down. And then six months later, six weeks later, we've managed to, to save it. So it's just about just getting some proper advice for someone that knows what can and can't be done. I think it's very difficult for a lot of business owners get blinkered because they're, they're just looking at it from one point of view. And Yeah, listen, like we, all, say, we, we yeah. all do it. You know, yeah. how well is your business doing? Yeah. You look at your bank account. Yeah. Okay, well, that has gone up last month. We must be doing well. Um, <laughs> and, and we've all done it because you don't really get taught exactly how to run a business at an early, yeah, exactly. an early yeah, age. Yeah. And, you know, that, that... But having said that, you still get some real experienced people that... You end up being so focused as a, as a, as a business owner on the, the micro details that sometimes you're standing back. Like, to be honest, Rod, if you were doing what I did for a week, you'd be amazed. You just, you, so you'd come across a, you know, a mining company. You know nothing about mining, but you'd sit down, speak to the guy. Okay, what, what do you do here? What are you buying that for? How much is that costing you? And before, within that morning, you would have identified two or three things that are really obvious that they shouldn't be doing. But because they're so focused on what they've always done, or they're looking at the little details, trying to find little margins. They obviously sometimes just don't take stand back and think. Actually, what, why are we doing? Why are we doing this? You see it a hell of a lot in the restaurant trade. Really? Like the amount of times I've sat down, had to say, "Why are you open for breakfast and lunch?" Well, that's what our customers expect us to do. Okay, well, you're losing money. Yeah. Or you're losing more money than you're making for dinner. Why are you open? And he literally, it's really hard sometimes to convince them, but that is just a real common, common mistake. Yeah. They say, well, we've always been open, we've got these loyal customers. Well, how many of your guys are coming for breakfast and get your you know, croissant and two coffees come, at, you know, come and order a la carte in, at dinner time? And you know, selling your wet goods, which is where they make yeah. a big margin on, on the wine and so on. So, well, none of them. So yeah. what are you doing? So it's those type of things that tend to be quite obvious. So just getting someone to look at it from a... 
And what and what would you say then from the other sort of end of the spectrum in terms of creditors and investors that have yeah. maybe invested into a company or even creditors that are owed money and obviously we all know the warning signs are you're not getting paid or the yeah. service isn't being done for the loan. But are there any other points at which you think they should kind of take an interest and, and, and be maybe a bit more gung-ho about making decisions on, on speaking to someone like yourself? Yeah, so it all depends on, on who you are. Obviously, yeah. if you're looking to put, you know, invest in something via, you know, some bond structure and so on and so on, you know, I think the common mistakes are people, you know, when you get sent that investment pack, so on and so on, make sure you actually, end, you are then investing in the, the entity that does have, say, that is FCA regulated. Mm-hmm. And make sure you understand what that means and what that entitles you to in terms of compensation and how protected you are or aren't. Warning signs when it's that type of investment will be when the information, you're not getting the information. So just breakdown in communication. Yeah, yeah, or just, you know, you're just being told the same story, so on and so on. And, you know, people never want to hear that information. So they refuse, they just blindly hope that it, this, what this director yeah. is saying is going to be the case. If you ever get, get if you ever, you know, and one thing we see a hell of a lot is that the you know, promoter of this scheme or um, the entity itself writes to you and says, look, we're going to restructure the product, can you consent to it? That's only ever going to be for their benefit as opposed to yours. Mm. Um, and then it's just a case of getting, getting advice because you want to, it can be quite difficult. If you don't have, say, security, and other people do, yeah. um, you are sitting behind them in, in the food chain. Um, if you're lucky, you can become a nuisance, and the directors then made a, make a decision to, to deal with you and pay you. If you sit there and do nothing and don't do anything, you are just going to get ignored. Yeah. Um, the question mark then becomes: Right, I want to put this company into liquidation. I'm going to issue the winding up petition, so on and so on. And then you've just got to be aware of what the estimated outcome statement, as we call it, looks like, as in what's your return likely to be? Yeah. And that's sometimes a judgment call because the director will say, well, look, if you, if you force this company over, you're going to get nothing. So you have to decide whether you're prepared to do that, call his bluff or her bluff, or um, try and work with him and get, give him an opportunity to try and turn, turn that business around. Because we see a lot of this, especially in development space, yeah. where developers are raising finance and they're raising maybe um, equity through individuals rather than kind of um, your, your mainstream lenders and uh, things don't work out the way they thought they would it yeah. runs by a year and the, the market goes down things like that so yeah. um, you do see it quite often and, and, and people do get burnt especially when the market turns it can be it can be fairly kind yeah. of disastrous for everyone involved um, what I would say in those types of scenarios if there are other investors in that whatever product business and so on Try and work with them. Yeah. You know, as soon as these, you know, they don't have to form a class action group, but if you're able to share information, you'll be able to tell pretty quickly that what the directors are telling you is it the same? Is he literally just, you know, jumping from one fire to the next and so on and so on? Yeah, um, definitely. And, and that shared information can be, can be pretty useful. So, um, in terms of kind of property and real estate, so I know you do quite a lot of um, property and real estate here. Yeah. What can you give us maybe some examples of some of the things that you've been involved in and, and why you might have been called in? And yeah, so it is pretty uh, pretty wide ranging, um, and it depends a lot on the, the lender and what yeah. their 
lending criteria. So you know, I do some work for some you know investment banks who have, who look after high net worth individuals, and they will lend a loan to value of forty to fifty percent. So that you don't tend to get appointed in those ones because you know there's been a slight move in the market. It will yeah. be something else. It yeah. will be that individual can be from being on the sanction list. Um, mm. You know, Trump's uh, sanction list uh, a couple of years ago, and then suddenly you know a bank wants to exit. He doesn't want to work with that guy. So on and so on. It might be a divorce. It might be other criminal. I'm sorry, <laughs> don't mean criminal. Other other proceedings elsewhere. And then you'll get your, you know, your secondary lenders, um, the guys that only put the money out for a year. And then if within a, a year you haven't paid it back, you know, you're bridging loan providers. Um, and they can be up to, you know, as, as we've seen, 110% yeah. at times. So um, they are pretty pretty challenging and um, pretty diff- pretty uh, can be very difficult. You know, I've had a few scenarios where we've had a... Um, a development below a below a waterline, um, which you know during the due diligence, the uh, the uh, bridging provider uh, didn't really didn't pick up on it. Didn't pick yeah. up on it, and you know you look at the DD they do, you know, do they really get a valuation, so on and so on, and dealing with that and trying to get them an exit on that is it, pretty challenging. And then some of the ones I've had, sort of, um, you know, prime real estate are, you know, you're dealing with the the real ultra high net worths, and you know, I feel, you know, often with that, it's you're dealing with um, very successful people with egos um, <laughs> and fully deserved egos, and you've just got to manage relationships really. And often it comes down to we get appointed sometimes because they're just a breakdown of communication. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's one thing I would always say, just don't, don't bury your head in the sand, share things with the, with the lender, with the bank. And they are ultimately going to try and they will generally try and work with you. Um, as I say, you know, 95, well, 99% of the lenders are, you know, are sensible guys. Yeah. They want, you want to get them out. Um, but if you go radio silence and don't engage with them, you're only really leaving them with with one option. Yeah, yeah. And how would you say the market in general for your business? Because people will be listening and thinking, God, we're in the middle of a pandemic, businesses are struggling, you must be the busiest you've ever been. So how are you finding things at the moment? Yeah, at, at the moment, so there's the, the formal sort of insolvency statistics since the pandemic show that there's been a drop of around... Forty percent in the number of uh, insolvencies. So there's less insolvencies now. Yeah, yes, well. yes, wow. and that will be due to three main reasons. One is obviously or the, the various schemes that are being put forward by the government, um, including sort of the, the the loans that can be obtained due to COVID. You've got both banks and HMRC for political and PR reasons not enforcing like they used to so that's where where we are at the moment we're giving our what we would call our pipeline it, it is growing on a, on a daily basis but you know you haven't got the tax man knocking on your door you've also got things like landlords at the moment aren't able to uh, enforce uh, against covid related debt yeah so you know, and I imagine everything at the moment can be seen in some way or other as kind of COVID-related yes, issues as well. Yeah, again, without getting too technical, yeah. now the onus now actually, Rod, is on the petitioning creditor. So the landlord has to prove in his application that it isn't COVID-related. Right. So normally you would, you would expect it actually to be the, the borrower, yeah. the debtor, to show why it's COVID-related. They've yeah. actually put the onus on the on the, the landlord to show that it isn't COVID related. So, yeah, so at the moment, um, we are sort of in a, in a strange sort of like waiting period, uh, yeah. a hiatus. 
obviously that debt doesn't go away you know you still do your, yeah. you still have to pay your landlord eventually so whenever that is going to change i think it's probably going to get pushed from uh, the end of this month to january mm-hmm. um and uh, we'll, we'll see how it all pans out but generally you know our the insolvency world tends to the the number of insolvency appointments generally increases in a buoyant economy because assets have value you know if you're sitting yeah. there with a portfolio and you've got some businesses that are struggling right now probably isn't the time to cash in and yeah. enforce and also your other ones aren't really flying when all if we're in a buoyant economy 80% of your portfolio is doing really well and you've got 20 that are struggling you spend so much time dealing with that 20 you think actually now one might not be a bad time to get some decent value for it yeah. but also then it's off my books and I can focus on the 80 that are flying when your 80 are just ticking along doing nothing and you don't think you can get value if you're 20 and no one's forcing it then why would you do anything with it and I think you mentioned before we kind of started the recording that there's three main drivers for insolvency. So do you want to just yeah, touch so on that? The, the three main drivers will be, one will be the banks, so that you're not able to, um, the banks, when you're not able to, to meet your repayments, um, so on and so on, they will, they will enforce. Yeah. And what they'll generally do, they'll invite you to go and have a discussion with an advisor and so on and so on. Obviously, if you don't, then they will formally enforce. You've then got HMRC uh, in, in the background who, you know, if you don't pay your, your VAT bills, corporation tax PAY, eventually they will issue a winding up petition. And thirdly, it will be that you are unable to get the finance you need. So, you know, you are... So you might not have much liquidity in exactly. the market. There's no yeah. liquidity in the market, so on and so on. Whereas at the moment, whilst the, the lenders are looking at how COVID-proof your business is. There's yeah. still a left, lot of money out there. Yeah. And if you can show that it's got, you know, got some legs, the money is there if you want it. Yeah, and obviously HMRC have kind of a, I suppose, don't want to be seen to be... No, exactly. It, again, that comes down to, you know, the... the, the it, it wouldn't look great on the government if yeah. HMRC were being sort of the... Uh, you know, bully boys out there. And if you look at generally, they, I'm sure you've, you know, some of your listeners will come across and have, have put in place time to pay arrangements. Mm-hmm. And you'll see the amount of time they are now giving for people to repay has extended threefold. Well, even bounce back loans, they have now gone from six years to 10, and, yeah. and various things with the C bills as well. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's no. It'd, 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 it'd be pretty pointless for the government to say, look, here's all this funding. But on the other hand, HMRC. Be aggressive as you can, yeah. because the governments get paid back from these seabills loans. They need, you know, UK economy to be successful, businesses to generate some profits to repay these loans. Yeah. So it'd be pretty stupid for them to have an aggressive tap dog of HMRC. And when, I mean, are you expecting them? Um, I mean, there to be a cliff edge of sorts, or are you expecting kind of your business to go up with insolvency shooting up? And, and if so. When and why? Well, at the moment, we keep sort of every sort of uh, three months, we keep pushing back a, another three months. So I think sort of, um, you know, Q1, Q2 next year. Yeah. Um, we have, you know, the, the number of inquiries have, you know, picked up in, in the last sort of three months. Oh, sorry, in the last three weeks. So we'll just have to wait and see. Some sectors are getting hit pretty hard and it's pretty obvious. So events businesses, for instance, yeah. you know, it's very difficult for, for them to see any um, light at the end of the tunnel. You're seeing some high-profile retailers take advantage of some new uh, legislation to sort of restructure, yeah. and there's a, you know, there's an ongoing, I don't want to say argument, but there's an ongoing negotiation between landlords and retailers, mm-hmm. and I think you're 
ultimately going to end up with sort of uh, you know turnover related. Yeah. And I think well, I think that's already starting, exactly. isn't it? And it's yeah, they don't have much choice because the high street and everything seems to be shrinking down. And, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. What advice then would you give to kind of business owners, specifically property ones as well, so developers, portfolio holders? Yep. Um, what advice would you give them over for the next sort of couple of years and if they are seeing sort of issues within their business and things like that? I think what we've sort of mentioned really is don't bury your head in the sand and hope just suddenly, you know, the, the market's going to turn around and fix your problems. There are a lot more solutions out there then you'll probably be aware of yeah. different types of lenders and just early engagement with you know professionals is just going to assist people tend to like i don't want to have to pay yeah. you know, 10 20 grand for a bit of advice but you know from in our world that initial meeting is free normally unfortunately extends to the first five meetings tends up tends being tends to be free and just being aware of what option c and d might look like yeah. Hopefully you'll never get there but you can make some some key decisions, yeah. um, you know, twelve months before potential scenario that can make a, a massive difference. Mm. Um, and you've obviously seen it. You know, I keep referring to retailers just because that's what yeah, the, exactly. the public yeah. picks up on. But you know, if you look at how those companies are structured in terms of where is the brand name in one company, okay, where are the leases in one company, where are the employees in one company, where's the stock in that company. And, you know, that, that, that's there for a reason, you know, protecting valuable assets. Okay, so if this one has to go into administration, who could potentially buy it when the IP, IP as in the brand name, is someone somewhere else? Yeah. So on and so on. So, you know, a bit of forward planning. And, yeah, just, as I say, trying to just don't ignore things. As soon as they're an issue, try and address it. And, you know, when it comes to sort of property and being concerned about sort of receivers being appointed, so on and so on. The easiest way to avoid that is just engaging with uh, with your funder, whoever it is, even yeah. if it's one of the most aggressive or not. If you can put a sensible plan in place, they're gonna go with you. It's just when you start not engaging with them, not to giving them the full picture, then they then it gets basically part part passed to a different division. It goes yeah. into credit or recovery, so on and so on. Initially, you're dealing with the sales guy that told you how, how perfect this uh, this product is is for your <laughs> development. As soon as people within the bank don't quite trust what he's feeding back, yeah. then you're dealing with a different party. And it's interesting what you said about kind of the structure of those retailers and how they're doing it. And it works the same for developers, but often developers aren't actually the ones structuring it in the correct way to protect themselves from from certain things. So I think that's quite an important point just about when you are structuring some of these deals to yeah. make sure they're structured in a in a correct way. Absolutely. And you know, you know, it, what's quite funny at the moment my my wife is starting her business and she keeps coming to me advice and you know, she's like, you're so negative. She's doing it with a partner. And she keeps referring to his husband, how supportive he is, so and so on. I was like, well look, this is because I always see worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, probably makes me not the ideal husband. Whereas, <laughs> but entrepreneurs, you know, which you know a lot of your listeners are, they always see things. Well, actually, how do I structure this? That means when I take my money out of the profits, I pay the least amount of tax. Yeah, exactly. Or what you want to make sure is actually, if this doesn't quite turn out how I want it to, how do I limit my exposure, mm-hmm. or how do I look after you know the jewels in the crown? Exactly. Um, yeah. So just occasionally get a bit of a devil's advocate view on how you should how you should structure something. 
I think that, yeah, just the, the overriding point is you can be, like we said, blinkered on something. You're also yep. not going to know everything. So getting outside perspective on things is exactly. invaluable, isn't it? Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that's been really, really interesting. I've definitely learned a bit, especially I, I, I didn't know businesses can't go bankrupt. So that's the first thing, yeah. American ones can, <laughs> not in the UK, as I said. It's a bit of a, bit of a, a, a mute point, but it's amazing how uh, the media always uses, uses that word. Yeah, definitely. And if people are in a position where they're thinking they might want to speak to you about the services you do, how can they get in contact with you? Well, I imagine there might be a link on your podcast. Yeah, there certainly uh, will be. You, you'll, you'll see me on there and a link, link to my website. So we've got, you know, I think we've got 20 offices across the UK. We do a bit of offshore as well. We've got an office in the Channel Islands where a lot of sort of funds and structures are set up. And yeah, just go on there. Uh, we've got a, a law firm as well, as, as you sort of mentioned, so we provide legal advice and also a you know, finance raising brokerage uh, that, that can help as well, Rods. And just in terms of that finance raising, so I know it's kind of not for your everyday standard buy-to-let landlord. What, yeah. what, what are the type of things there that, or who, who are the type of people it might appeal to of businesses? So being blunt, Rod, it is geared more to a, a non-property related yeah. business. I appreciate this is a property podcast. Focus- well, podcast. Not all but but um, yes, yeah, so it'll just be from asset-based lending. So people looking to finance equipment, uh, invoice financing, which is basically your debtors. Yeah. So you trade with someone, you get a debtor, you sell it to a um, to a, a funder at a percentage. Mm-hmm. The remaining when when it gets paid, he keeps a little slice and pays the rest back back to you. So it assists you with your cash flow and yeah. allows you to grow. But for instance, you know we have gone from you know our business has gone from you know daily on a weekly basis we might be helping a barber finance a barbershop chair for fifteen grand to being appointed over an investment bank that's got you know 800 million under management so it's pretty wide-ranging in terms of what we get involved in um and but but generally we are sme focused and work yeah. with you know business owners themselves and what are sorry one last question i keep thinking no, no, things up so um what are you expecting uh to be the most at-risk businesses and industries over the next six to twelve months yeah, it's, 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 that's always quite a difficult one to, to, to answer, Rod. And so um, you'll get the big four, your PwCs, KPMGs and so on and so on. They'll do an analysis of the economic outlook, so on and so on. We as a firm generally take, you know, the top, we're always in the top two for the number of administration appointments a year. But it's still quite difficult to spot spot uh, trends. And, you know, if you look at things like, you know, Netflix at the start of the pandemic was absolutely flying and everything, what, what a great yeah. investment that would be. If you look now in the press, you're reading about it struggling. Um, clearly, events businesses um, are, as I mentioned, are, are, are struggling at, at the moment. If you look at generally property, you know, I'm sure you get all the updates from the um, from the estate agents and so on and so on. And my view is eventually there's been such a significant drop drop in um, you know productivity across yeah. the world economy. You feel that eventually people are going to sort of wake up and think actually how are house prices in London continuing to to, to rise at the moment? You know, mm-hmm. even you know two bed flats. You're thinking well. That doesn't make any sense, but you know the money is still there. You look at you know the position of the markets; they haven't you know massively dipped yet. So I think what I think you're going to see is that the trends that we had before the pandemic were probably just going to be magnified. So if you're looking at sort of retail, casual dining, so on and so on, unless it is an experience for someone to come into town, 
goes to the shops, so on and so on, I just think they're going to continue to struggle. So if you look at something like at the Westfields, yeah. they're still doing well because you can go there, you can do four gym workouts, you can take your kids to five different play centres, yeah. you've got cinemas, you've got restaurants, and it become an event. Yeah. Um, so I think those are going to continue to do well. I was at the um, Batsy Power Station yeah. uh, at the weekend, and it's the same sort of thing there that they've built. It's really experience-led yeah. with all the shops and restaurants and things like that. And just thought, yeah, that's there's a big difference between that and your standard kind of high street. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I t- totally agree with all that. So yeah, so we'll see. You know, yeah. hope, you know, it can be it can be a good thing generally for for the market that you get rid of. You know, some of the the guys that comment on this, they often talk about it's good to get rid of the struggling businesses. You know, it allows capital to get freed up and invested in businesses that are successful and can drive the economy forward, rather yeah. than you know your you know your old school bank managers sitting there worrying about his old debt and the ones that are struggling. He can you know put that elsewhere and try and grow UK economy. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for giving up your time today, and hopefully, not too many of our listeners will be needing needing no. services. But like like you said, if people are struggling um, and thinking that it's maybe uh, maybe a good idea, then obviously seek professional help and uh, get outside views on what's going on within your business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on the Rodcast.